Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the land of bourbon and bad decisions. This is Relentless Daring live on podbean.com. Again, I was like, as I do every week, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Uh, I can't do this without your support. So please be sure to go to patreon.com slash relentless daring one and become a patron today. That helps, you know, keep, keep the, uh, equipment upgraded, pay for subscriptions for hosting because as much as all the fine folks at podbean.com are as nice as they are to me to allow me to come on here and bloviate at y'all for an hour every week. It does cost money to host. So, again, that's what that goes into is keeping this on the air. Uh, again, oh, my goodness, my soundboard is trying to fall over the joys of live radio. But um, so this week is the world is on fire. And that's mostly kind of talking about, you know, pointing to California. There's a couple other things I want to discuss where it legitimately feels like the world is just losing its ever-loving mind. So, I mean, because as soon as all these wildfires begin popping up in California, the first thing that comes to everyone's mind is global warming. It's getting hotter. Everything's drying out. So it burns. Well, I've been doing some looking into that. And also being a person who's grown up in the woods, grown up, you know, having to prevent my house from, having, from being at risk of burning down in the event that there was a fire. I've learned some things over the years. Some of you looking at that. So, oh my goodness, everything's going crazy in here. But no, and it's just been also uh, one thing, another thing I want to look at is apparently uh, the good lieutenant colonel who went before Congress and testified about the quote, infamous phone call, end quote, or I guess if you're Adam Schiff, it's infamous. If you're Donald Trump, it's the perfect phone call to the Ukraine. Now, there's some stuff that was brought up in testimony by the good lieutenant colonel that um, you you have a few questions about. And then looking at the devaluing of life, um, there's a story come out this week about how there's doctors in the Netherlands. I know, not the United States, but the way things tend to happen in Europe, they'd like to come over to the U.S. But there's starting to become more doctors who are approving of childhood euthanasia. So I will be looking at that. And it's just, I said, this, the world is on fire. Be back right after this. All right, so uh, first subject that I'm going into is uh, 
talking about the uh, fires in California. Right now, there are a number of fires burning around Los Angeles. And again, it's, it's one of those, the calls have gone out almost immediately that the problem is global warming. I have a different look at it. So if you ever pay any attention to California's green laws, they're very, very restrictive on what state agencies can do and what you know municipal agencies and private agencies are allowed to do as far as keeping the forests from becoming a giant tinderbox. And one of those things is they don't allow for clearing the undergrowth out of forest land. Now, it doesn't seem like scrub brush can be that big of an issue. But the problem lies is that because of California's laws re regarding uh, wildlife protection and forest protection, their, their forests contain up to five times the density of other maintained healthy forest land. And so that so then California has an issue with droughts. So now you have a limited amount of rain with five times the vegetation absorbing that rain out of the soil, that water out of the soil. So that means the this vegetation is drier. You have deadfalls that from where you know branches die in trees and they fall to the ground. You know, again, the the dry underlying scrub, it turns into a tinderbox. So then all it takes is lightning, uh, an errant spark or an ember from a campfire, some jack wagon just trying to do as much damage as possible by starting a fire. And that's what it, and that's all it takes. And you compound it with the Santa Ana winds that come here. And it just causes what could be something very manageable. And takes it into something scary. Now, one of the big ones is they've been talking about this week is the easy fire. Which, oddly enough gets its name because it started near Easy Street in West LA. Uh, one th and one of the things that kind of helps prove my point as far as the management goes is that the Easy Fire was threatening uh, the Reagan Presidential Library. Well, Ronald Reagan, when he was alive, before he was President Reagan, before Alzheimer's and all that, he was very proactive on maintaining his property. As a as a child, they had his family had lost their home to one of these big wildfires. So he made sure to go out of his way to keep his property cleaned up. That way. That way, you wouldn't have the risk of wildfire destroying the property. So now, in a perfectly green move, his estate and the management of the library, every fall, they bring in goats. And they use the goats to clean up the underbrush and, you know, the young green plant material to you know prevent the fires from leaving the forest land around the library and making it to the library now another one of the problems that has happened is because of the strict strict regulation on uh forestry 
you no longer have log roads that go in that go into forest land and those themselves begin to create small fire breaks and allow for uh the the brush trucks to get in to you know into the heart of the woodlands where they can you know combat fires and begin making bigger fire breaks out where they can attack it before it gets to populated areas so i mean really what's going on in california is not necessarily because of global warming it's just bad policy uh, donald trump took a lot of flack last year when during uh after a after or during one of the big fires where he was attacking california on their force policy because oh my goodness how dare you say it's our fault it's global warming how dare you i mean it's it's absolutely ridiculous when you can't look at any possibility other than it's mankind's fault because of a global tragedy that mankind is creating. But when all actuality, it's, well, we don't have enough water because we haven't built a reservoir since 1972, but you know, our population, it hasn't grown in the last what 45 years hmm or that we've decided that yeah we we want to protect the tufted tip mice that are running around the forest land i know a tip mouse is actually a bird i just follow me stay stay with my weird logic here you know, we're trying to protect these mice, these rats, other things. So we can't go in and clean up the deadfalls. We can't clean up uh, underbrush that's growing up because we might hurt their environment. Well, you know what? I like having a house. And last time I checked, nature is very resilient when it comes to you know, little bouncing kangaroo rats finding a new place to hide. Uh, we had, we used to have neighbors years ago who they kept a winter home in the high desert in California. They had a problem with rattlesnakes in their area. That was because on the uh, a part on some, one of the people's property in the neighborhood. There was a pile of scrap lumber and one of the creatures that decided that this pile of scrap scrap lumber was the perfect home wasn't was an endangered or a threatened kangaroo rat so because there was kangaroo rats living in the pile they couldn't get rid of it and because they couldn't get rid of it well, there's the kangaroo rats, and what eats the kangaroo rats? Rattlesnakes. And so, due to, you know, I'm not going to say disgruntled policy, but I'm going to call it misgruntled. Well-meaning, but eh, we didn't really think about the secondary and tertiary effects of our policy. So misgruntled environmental policies. Now you have a neighborhood that's now infested with rattlesnakes because, well, we can't get rid of this brush pile or this lumber pile that has stupid rats living in it. You know, that's kind of, and again, that goes into what's going on with the, the part of the issue with the uh, forest management if california was truly serious they would look to states that don't have the ridiculous uh, legislation against them or that ridiculous legislation that prevents utility companies that prevents landowners state state agencies from going in and 
taking care of the and taking care of the forest land so that way it doesn't burn to the ground anytime there's a lightning strike or whatever that whatever sparks the fire and a lot of these fires that started in california uh they're being linked back to pg and e pacific gas and electric which they're having a ton of rolling blackouts right now because with these high winds they're shutting off power to certain areas of the state so that way when the trees blow into the power lines you know they'll hit power lines or knock power lines down whatever but they're not sparking they're not causing uh causing starting fires because and why is this such an issue again it goes back to california and their green policies pg and e cannot go through their uh thoroughfares and their right-of-ways and clean up the trees and cut them back a certain distance from the power lines you know here in missouri every so often the contractor for our power provider they come through with trucks that looks like uh, five or six uh skill saw blades on and they go down the right-of-ways and they clean all of it up you know they've had to come in we our tree in the backyard they've had to go and cut it cut part of it out because it's growing too close to the power lines and that's you know it protects their property you know obviously from being damaged if the wind picks up and it also protects our property because the trees not hitting the lines and catching on fire or knocking the live lines onto our house and starting a fire. So, I mean, this is, it's one of those things where California is blatantly putting the lives of their people, of their citizens behind that of birds and mice and lesser critters and it's it's a sad thing because like i said nature is incredibly resilient um in the pacific northwest and washington state the environmentalists said oh my gosh you 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 can't you can't harvest trees in the old growth forest where are the spotted owls going to live well um okay we, we won't harvest in the old growth forest we'll only use the second and third growth forest where we've already harvested and the trees are getting big enough to re-harvest well and that turns out the spotted owls they like the new growth forest as well and then everyone said oh well this is great we're not threatening them they can live where they want to live let's just go and continue to cut trees and serve our forest industry no that did not happen at all the crazy green hippies then anytime that they were starting to see these owls popping up in places where they didn't expect owls to be restricted you know forestry harvesting in those new growth forests as well because oh my gosh the owls we have to protect the owls it, it's just a constant moving of the goalposts so you know when the uh when all the dumb hippies come out and say, you know, well, we're just doing it for this. We're just doing it for that. They, yeah, they, when they say they, they care about the little cave dwelling blind Paiute trout, that's literally, they care about that trout more than they care about someone being able to get water from out of that cave system, you know, so that their community has drinking water uh california one of the reasons they haven't built any new 
reservoirs and how many years is because of a three inch fish that could very well be going through a natural extinction process regardless of man's involvement regardless of man you know building dams running cattle through uh, running cattle through streams where these little three inch minnows live maybe it's um it's darwinism at work survival of the fittest these little three inch minnows are unable to thrive unable to survive and so nature is doing what nature does it's calling out the species that will not survive you know that's what it's been in nature forever is evolve or die You know, millions and millions of species as time has gone on have died off because due to changes in climate. Wait, wait, there, there were changes in climate before mankind? Yes. That's normal. Because climate change is provably a cyclical thing that happens. And so climate has been changing it's gotten hotter it's gotten colder you know the dinosaurs died off for whatever reason man didn't cause that issue yeah then the ice ages came and we got these large hairy beasts then the ice ages ended and suddenly these large hairy beasts could not sustain themselves anymore because it's too hot of a climate for them and they died off and they were replaced with something less hairy. It's the nature of is the nature of nature. Because of its resilience, nature will find a way for the animals that are worthy of surviving to be around. Regardless of what man does to help control that, regardless of what man does to speed up or slow down the effects of nature oh my goodness so that being said it's all of this is a matter of california just needs to allow its people to be able to take a proactive step in preventing these giant fires <clears throat> need to take the step to prevent these giant fires by actually being ahead of the system and you know cleaning things up All right, so getting back into it, um, you know, one of the things I said I was going to talk about, yeah, I got to pull the article. The, uh, I had a Washington Post story in here. Doggone it. Ah, here it is. So uh, this article is Washington Post, because democracy dies in darkness. You know, they, they ran this story uh, headline, White House official who heard Trump's call with Ukraine leader testified that he was told to keep quiet. And first of all, is the White House, is the executive branch. They do have the authority to decide what is executive privilege and what is not. So if they say, hey, this is privileged conversations, we don't want you testifying. They kind of have that ability, but that is neither here nor there at this point. Uh, reading from the article, several days after President Trump's phone call with the leader of Ukraine, 
a top White House lawyer instructed a senior national security official not to discuss his grave concerns about the leader's conversation with anyone outside the White House, according to three people familiar with the aide's testimony. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, a very wonderful infantry officer, by the way, testified that he received this instruction from John Eisenberg, the top legal advisor for the National Security Council, after White House lawyers learned on July 29th that a CIA employee had anonymously raised concerns about Trump phone call. The director from Eisenberg adds to an expanding list of moves by senior White House officials to contain, if not conceal, possible evidence of Trump's attempt to pressure Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to provide information that could be damaging to former Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, breaking from the article, I have read the transcript, and there is nothing in said transcript that makes it even sound like they're uh, putting pressure on them for anything. There was talk of uh, of javelins, which for anyone who does not know what a javelin is, it is a man-portable, shoulder-fired, anti-tank missile. Because, you know, the Ukrainians are fighting these wonderful people on their eastern border called the Russians over a region called the Crimea Peninsula. But, you know, reading through the transcript, there is talk about the javelins. Yeah, we're going to show you the javelins. And then the transcript goes into talking about uh, the corruption investigations and the mention of Joe Biden. But they're never, as much as uh, the news media is talking about quid pro quo, there's not what I see as a definitive this for that uh, offer being made concerning standing in the way or of, you know, investigate them or we're not going to sell you these javelins which i don't know if anyone is um keeping track but there's a lot of that that goes on in our foreign policy uh in fact i don't have the audio of it but bernie sanders is on a campaign trail saying if he was president, he would tell Israel, you know, look, we give you $3 billion in uh, aid every year. You need to rethink your, if you'd like to keep getting it, you need to rethink your uh, policy concerning Gaza. I mean, he's campaigning on quid pro quo. And we're going to get our panties in a collective bunch over Donald Trump, yeah, he might have possibly used done a quid pro quo. Forget the fact that they're trying to investigate, hey, this company that Joe Biden's son happened to work for, the one, one of the presidents of this company was president of a bank that lost $1.7 billion in taxpayer money that was given to them. They deposited it and then just went poof. But yeah, because one of the people involved is tied to a former vice president who is also running for president, we can't talk about. You know, we, we can't investigate that because even though it's in the national interest to actually figure out where the hell, you know, nearly $8 billion total has gone since 2014 after uh, Russia invaded the Crimean Peninsula. Anyways, reading on through this. Oh, he's 
sorry, I had an ad pop up in the middle of the uh, article. The instruction to stay quiet came from the White House officials who had already discussed moving a rough transcript of the call into a highly classified computer server. And the instruction was delivered by Eisenberg, who would later be involved in the administration's battle to keep an explosive whistleblower complaint about the call from being shared with Congress. Again, pause. Because the IG, or the ICIG, I guess, the intelligence community inspector general said, wait, this is secondhand. Oh, okay, I'm gonna have to I have to run down some leads. I want to check on this before I send it up. And that was after the whistleblower went outside the chain of command, went outside what was pres the prescribed formula for doing one of these reports. And he went to his buddy, but went to his buddies who worked for none other than Congressman Adam Schiff. Hmm. A CIA person with ties to staffers of the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Weird. But then, you know, he doesn't have firsthand knowledge. He has second, third-hand knowledge. And so yeah, the IG has to actually track down and go, do we, does this qualify to go to Congress immediately? Or is it one of those things that's kind of, eh, it's, it's not founded. So we're just going to, uh, just, it's just going to go away. But, you know, it is what it is. Reading on, the interaction between Eisenberg and Vindman suggests that there was a sense among some of the White House that Trump's call with Zelensky was not, as the president has repeatedly claimed, perfect. And it threatens to undercut Trump's argument that the expanding impeachment inquiry is politically driven. Quote, if this is such a perfect call, why is everybody going to these extraordinary links? End quote said a U.S. official familiar with Vindman's testimony. Why are people running immediately to the White House counsel? Why not? Why is the White House counsel telling people not to talk about it? Well, probably because the White House has had a heck of a problem with leaks over the years. Uh, many of them have been traced back to this uh, CIA whistleblower who seemed to have a really cushy relationship with a lot of people in Congress and with a certain former vice president who actually invited him to state dinners while he was a member of the White House staff during the Obama administration. But, hey, you know, that's, that's just drawing conclusions where there's nothing to draw. Memma's testimony Tuesday pointed to several actions by White House officials that could be interpreted as attempts to cover up Trump's conduct. The top Ukraine expert at the White House, Vindman was one of several officials who listened to the Trump-Zelensky call from the White House Situation Room. And one of those other people who was listening to that call was Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. So now you have multiple people who listen to this call. You have a rough transcript, which they say it's rough transcript because eh, generally this is what they heard said. They wrote, they dictated as best they could. Then when the call was done, they compared notes, you know, because maybe someone heard something that one of the other people listening to this call didn't. And then they wrote down what it was they heard. It's a little, that's how, that's how these rough transcripts are done. It's not an actual recording device that then translates, you know, all the speech into text and it produces transcript that way. 
He told lawmakers he was deeply troubled by what he interpreted as an attempt by the president to subvert U.S. foreign policy. And this is where I'm going to stop. Again, we have this thing. I'm sure if Lieutenant Colonel Vindman went back and looked at his uh, his oath that he swore when he accepted his commission in the United States in the United States Army. Uh, I remember I took this oath when I enlisted. And I raised my right hand. I said, I, Aaron Tyler Morgan, do solemnly swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and, foreign and domestic, and bear true faith and allegiance to the same, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. Within the Constitution, under the article that deals with presidential powers and responsibilities, Article 2, I believe, I, I, hold on, I'm going to look this up live just to make sure I'm not mistaken. Article, nope, Article 2 of the Constitution. Ah, yes, the executive power. So, under Article 2 of the Constitution, I'm not going to go through and find the exact paragraph, line, and all of that. The sole responsibility for U.S. foreign policy is the president. If Donald Trump wanted to change our foreign policy with Ukraine to, we're going to drop all of our bombs on you, well, no, that has to go to Congress. If the president said they, he was going to sever all diplomatic ties with Ukraine and only deal with Russia about everything going on with Ukraine, that's the president's prerogative. If the president wanted to cut all diplomatic ties with China, that would be his prerogative. Because... Ultimately, it's the president who sets foreign policy. And Lieutenant Colonel Vindman does not want to accept the fact that Donald Trump has a different foreign policy goal than his predecessor, Barack Obama. And that is what has led to, you know, him speaking out against Donald Trump because, oh my gosh, I like the last boss so much better. And look at you, you orange-based clown. It's all political chicanery. It is an officer who is failing his oath. As an officer of the United States Army, as an officer of the United States military, to uphold the Constitution, because he sees the his commander in chief as a threat. When they're, and I know, I know, he was awarded a Purple Heart for injuries while serving his country. You know what I don't have from serving my country? A purple heart. That's because I did my best to not give the enemy their little purple war trophy. And honestly, if I had been awarded a purple heart, I probably would be um, remiss to wear it. Because, again, it's the enemy's war trophy. That's, that's so they can, you can show the world that they got one. You got zero. You did, yeah, maybe you won at the end of the day. But they still got you. Reading on the article. 
uh, president subverted U.S. foreign policy and an improper attempt to coerce a foreign government into investigating a U.S. citizen. We've had a previous president who used president who used presidential authority to try to affect the outcome of a, of a foreign election. So I really don't think they've got a whole lot of room to stand on. Venman said he relayed these concerns to Eisenberg within hours of the phone call, according to the people familiar with Venman's testimony who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss closed-door testimony. While meeting with Eisenberg, Venman said he heard the legal advisor tuner turn to another attorney in the room and propose steps to restrict access to the rough transcript. Again, it is a, a White House that has been plagued with leaks since from the time he set foot in that office, there's a reason why they were trying to restrict access to it because it will probably be used against him at some point. Turns out he was they were correct, it was used, and they ended up releasing the transcript as a, we didn't do anything wrong. But again, that's neither here nor there. Move described in the whistleblower report as an attempt to, quote, lock down, end quote, what lawmakers now consider the most damaging piece of evidence about Trump's intent and conduct. Bittman also testified the transcript failed to capture several potentially important words or phrases, including a reference by Zelensky to a Ukrainian energy company, Burisma, that had employed by his son and that Trump wanted investigated. Again, looking at Burisma, one of the one of the board members was the president of the Ukrainian National Bank that had gotten had deposited by the nation of nation of Ukraine over $1 billion that all magically disappeared because eh, who cares if tax money went to waste? I mean, they, they don't, you don't hear people bitching and moaning every time they, uh, you know, drop a million dollar grant to invest or to research something at a university that has absolutely no bearing on anybody's lives. So who cares about a billion dollars? Well, frankly, I care. We are a country that has $23 trillion in debt. You know, if we are aiding foreign nations, it'd be nice to know that that money's actually being used, not just being siphoned off in some form of graft to, you know, support the lifestyles of oligarchs and, and, other members of the thugocracy in a foreign country. I mean, if we were dumping during the 80s and 90s, if we were dumping a billion dollars a year into Colombia, we're dumping a billion dollars a year into Colombia, and then Colombia was turning around funneling that money into the into the Medellin cartel. I mean, wouldn't we have a right to know if the Colombian government was doing that? That's what I said. This, honestly, I don't know what's going to happen with all of this as far as Donald Trump impeachment. I mean, I'm 99% sure that the House will vote to impeach. I am 99% sure that the Senate is going to, excuse me, is going to acquit him of any of these charges. But uh, the, the political damage is done. Now, 
I've always tried to be fair and impartial when it comes to Donald Trump. I was not a fan of him when he was running for president because of his past history. He did not have a long line of, uh, you know, conservative or even libertarian leaning stances that really made me go, yeah, I can give him a chance. I was always Ted Cruz guy, honestly. If I had been able to vote for vote in the uh, 2016 election, I would not have voted for Donald Trump. I would have written in Ted Cruz on my ballot. However, there's a lot of stuff that Donald Trump has done that I think was a, was good things. Not necessarily great, but good. You know, a, a modest tax cut, which could have been better. And number of other uh, no, number of other policies. We got Neil Gorsuch, who there's times where because of his libertarianness, he's almost a little too socially liberal on some things when he interprets the Constitution, and so he rules in a way that I, eh, I might not necessarily agree with. And then there's time, you know, he's right. He's ruling the way I would like to see it rule. You know, the, the border wall, fence, barrier, unicorn thing. I don't see it happening. There's too many special interests that will prevent it. Again, that's one of those neither here nor there kind of things. But if there was going, if evidence came out where Oh my God, we have him literally on video and audio tape saying, you know, you're going to do this, blah, 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 blah. And an actual illegal thing, you know, trying to bribe a foreign official, accepting a bribe from a foreign official, then I would stand behind impeachment. Because if he's being bribed, I mean, Leveraging money and aid, we've done that for forever in this country. And for people to suddenly decide now that, well, that's an impeachable offense. How dare the president threaten to withhold aid, funding, weapons? I mean, it's his prerogative. However, I don't know. It's, this is one of those topics that's going to be debated hot and heavy for the next 20 years. Did, was Donald Trump in the wrong? I don't know. I haven't seen sufficient evidence to tell me he has. But And looking at what's available, drop it. It's the best I can figure. Be back right after this. Jumping back here on final story of this uh, this episode of the cast uh, study, 84% of Dutch pediatricians want euthanasia for kids. Uh, this article comes out of Church Militant. And keep in mind, the, uh, the sample size for this survey is very, very small. 
granted, it's the Netherlands, and you know, maybe they only have this many. I'm trying to find that, but uh, but yeah, euthanasia for kids. Uh, reading from the article. According to a survey, pediatricians in the Netherlands overwhelmingly favor euthanasia for young children. A coalition of hospitals published the study in late September. Specifically, it indicates that many doctors support euthanasia for children 1 to 12 years of age. Currently in the Netherlands, newborn infants over 1 year of age can be subject to involuntary euthanasia. Children ages 13 to 16, meanwhile, can agree to be euthanized if they have parental consent. Euthanasia is still forbidden in the Netherlands for children ages 1 to 12, although the survey shows a surprising number of doctors who work with children for a living would like to see that changed. Hmm. So... The newborn infants can be involuntarily euthanized. I have to go. Oh, it's just a link to another, another retelling of the same article. But reading through the article, really, it goes goes to the question of end of life treatment for terminal children you know typically cancer patients but i don't know it's if an adult with terminal cancer wanted to make that decision that i don't know that's a really hard you know really hard thing to do because if they are in a lot of pain and suffering, I understand. And, you know, maybe, you know, after years and years of battling a horrible disease, they're done. You know, I'm not saying I condone the choice, but I certainly understand it. But I don't, and children, no one wants to see a child suffer. But at the same time, I think my biggest thing is if there are that much pain and suffering that they're being, they're looking at suicide, or I'm, I'm sorry, that's, that's insensitive, euthanasia, say that with the air quotes around it. You know, why not do like other hospice patients and just make them as comfortable as they can? Not that, you know, granted, they're probably going to be in a fog and not really responsive, but I mean, if it means they're not suffering and it allows them to ease into their end of life and they're you know, there's certain death without actually killing them. I, I think that's one thing, but just be like, well, Jimmy, uh, it's been a long, hard fight, but uh, hey, if you say you're done, all right, Doc, bring that needle in. You know, I'm sure it's a decision that would be not nowhere near as flippant, but it's just... Is this something I couldn't see me doing for my children if one of them was was at that point? So I mean, I don't know. It's I mean, it's it's awful thing that so many that so many uh, of course I say so many. I think it's like thirty one out of like thirty eight pediatricians so um, 
I mean, I just, I just don't know. It's, it's just one of those things that I don't think we should be euthanizing anyone, honestly, you know, outside of a uh, death sentence handed down by a jury of their peers. And even then, that's, I think, is to be extra judicious on just because we we have a great uh, justice system in our country. We don't have a perfect one. Uh, innocent people go to prison for crimes they didn't commit. That's a fact. But I, again, like if it comes to uh, death penalty, it has to be overwhelming evidence, not just circumstantial, if you're going to execute another human being for a crime. That's my opinion. I know there's other people who would think that I'm an absolute monster because of that opinion, but I think the death penalty as a punishment is suitable death penalty on the books as a deterrent is bullcrap and you are intellectually dishonest if you run with that argument murder is already against the law it does not stop people from actually killing other people it just sets up an appropriate punishment if convicted of said crime so again uh I just think it's a really, really bad idea to go into that and to, to even think about being able to euthanize children because at what point does it go from, well, my child has terminal illness to, you know, my child has uh, horrible developmental issues or a genetic disease a previously unknown genetic disease where they are um, unable to care for themselves. I, it brings up a lot of moral quandaries. I don't think we as a society, as a nation, as a species, should be looking at as far as the thought of euthanizing children. All right, so that's going to wrap up this week's episode. Again, thank you all for listening and tuning, or those of you who listen to the podcast, thank you so much for going back and checking it out. Uh, remember, podcasts available, Apple iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio. It's your favorite podcatcher. Um, shout out to all my listeners in Ireland, Canada, South Africa. Apparently, I'm getting a decent number of listeners in Kenya as well. So, top of the morning to all of you and to especially those Australians. Gotta love those uh, kangaroo folk down there on the other side of the globe. Again, you, you uh, so go to iTunes, you listen to it there. Four things. Number one, subscribe. Because as you subscribe, it runs the numbers up. And it helps the uh, helps out the uh, the algorithm to get more people to find me. Number two, rate it. Those five star reviews they add up again. It gets more people like you into the community, so we you know do all this together. Write a review is number three. That way, someone sees it, they can read the reviews go decide okay well this person has this good thing to say this person has that bad thing to say eh hopefully they ignore the bad people only listen to the good good reviews and number four share it podcast kick it out there amongst your friends say hey check this out maybe you'll like it i don't know let's say there's four things again thank you all so much for tuning in or listening on the podcast if that's your thing Come back in next week, and we'll see what kind of shenanigans we can get into. 
Until then, stay relentless. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 